Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Reverb. My name is Alex Helberg, and I am coming at you solo this week to present another iteration, another installment of our reread series, in which we take a short story, usually a, a work of literature, a work of fiction and bring it to life, present it as an audio drama, usually selecting stories that are particularly poignant for the kinds of political and cultural moments that we are living through. And today will be no exception. Uh, I'm very, very excited to present to you our rendering of the short story by Ray Bradbury, There Will Come Soft Rains, otherwise uh, titled as August 2026, there will come soft rains. So kind of uh, one of those that uh, that forecasted a, a future that we are now encroaching directly upon, only six years shy of it. I just wanted to give a little bit of background on this story before I get started, uh, because this is uh, one of my favorite uh, science fiction short stories. Ray Bradbury obviously was an author of a lot of different kinds of short fiction, uh, particularly known well for his science fiction stories. But this one in particular stands out. This was originally published in May 6 of 1950 in Collier's Magazine, but then it was also included as a chapter in The Martian Chronicles that was published that same year. I'm just reading from the Wikipedia page here as well. Uh, this is kind of crucial information. The author considered this short story as the only one in The Martian Chronicles uh, that is a work of science fiction. According to the Christian Science Monitor, uh, Ray Bradbury identified this as, quote, the one story that represents the essence of Ray Bradbury. And I think that we'll find out why uh, in just a few minutes as we approach the uh, story here. Uh, it's also critical to note that this story takes its title from a poem of the same name uh, that was published by Sarah Teasdale in 1918. Uh, that was published in the context of World War One, and uh, wouldn't you know it, the 1918 flu pandemic. So some kind of eerie similarities to the moment that we're living through right now that uh, that these works are published. Bradbury's, of course, was a little bit more in response to uh, the onset of the Cold War and kind of considering the influence of technologies on our lives, the ways that we comport ourselves uh, in relationship to nature and to the rest of humanity, and the consequences of when we let things slide, let's say, into a sort of more dystopian future where things continue to run even without us there. So, in that spirit, let us begin. There Will Come Soft Rains by Ray Bradbury. In the living room, the voice clock sang, Tick tock, seven o'clock, time to get up, time to get up, seven o'clock as if it were afraid that nobody would. The morning house lay empty. The clock ticked on, repeating and repeating its sound into the emptiness. Seven nine, breakfast time, seven nine. In the kitchen, the breakfast stove gave a hissing sigh and ejected from its warm interior eight pieces of perfectly brown toast, eight eggs sunny side up, 16 slices of bacon, two coffees, and two cool glasses of milk. Today is August 4th, 2026, said a voice from the kitchen ceiling, in the city of Allendale, California. It repeated the date three times for memory's sake. Today is Mr. Featherstone's birthday. Today is the anniversary of Talita's marriage. Insurance is payable, as are the water, gas, 
and light bills. Somewhere in the walls, relays clicked. Memory tapes glided under electric eyes. Eight one tick tock, eight one o'clock, off to school, off to work, run, run, eight one. But no doors slammed. No carpets took the soft tread of rubber heels. It was raining outside. The weather box on the front door sang quietly. Rain, rain, go away, umbrellas, raincoats for today. And the rain tapped on the empty house, echoing. Outside, the garage chimed and lifted its door to reveal the waiting car. After a long wait, the door swung down again. At 8.30, the eggs were shriveled and the toast was like stone. An aluminum wedge scraped them into the sink, where hot water whirled them down a metal throat which digested and flushed them away to a distant sea. The dirty dishes were dropped into a hot washer and emerged twinkling dry. 9.15, sang the clock. Time to clean. Out of warrens in the wall, tiny robot mice darted. The rooms were a crawl with the small cleaning animals, all rubber and metal. They thudded against chairs, whirling their mustached runners, kneading the rug nap, sucking gently at hidden dust. Then, like mysterious invaders, they popped into their burrows. Their pink electric eyes faded. The house was clean. Ten o'clock. The sun came out from behind the rain. The house stood alone in a city of rubble and ashes. This was the one house left standing. At night, the ruined city gave off a radioactive glow which could be seen for miles. 10.15. The garden sprinklers whirled up in golden founts, filling the soft morning air with scatterings of brightness. The water pelted window panes, running down the charred west side where the house had been burned evenly free of its white paint. The entire west face of the house was black, save for five places. Here, the silhouette and paint of a man mowing the lawn. Here, as in a photograph, a woman bent to pick flowers. Still farther over, their images burned on wood in one titanic instant. A small boy, hands flung into the air. Higher up, the image of a thrown ball and opposite him, a girl, hands raised to catch a ball which never came down. The five spots of paint, the man, the woman, the children, the ball, remained. The rest was a thin, charcoal layer. The gentle sprinkler rain filled the garden with falling light. Until this day, how well the house had kept its peace. How carefully it had inquired. Who goes there? What's the password? And getting no answer from lonely foxes and whining cats, it had shut up its windows and drawn shades in an old maidenly preoccupation with self-protection, which bordered on mechanical paranoia. It quivered at each sound the house did. If a sparrow brushed a window, the shades snapped up. The bird startled flew off. No, not even a bird must touch the house. Twelve noon. A dog whined, shivering on the front porch. The front door recognized the dog voice and opened. The dog, once huge and fleshy, but now gone to bone and covered with sores, 
moved in and through the house, tracking mud. Behind it whirred angry mice, angry at having to pick up mud, angry at inconvenience. For not a leaf fragment blew under the door, but what the wall panels flipped open and the copper scrap rats flashed swiftly out. The offending dust, hair, or paper, seized in miniature steel jaws, was raced back to the burrows. There, down tubes which fed into the cellar, it was dropped into the sighing vent of an incinerator, which sat like evil ball in a dark corner. The dog ran upstairs, hysterically yelping at each door, at last realizing, as the house realized, that only silence was there. It sniffed the air and scratched the kitchen door. Behind the door, the stove was making pancakes, which filled the house with a rich baked odor and the scent of maple syrup. The dog frothed at the mouth, lying at the door, sniffing, its eyes turned to fire. It ran wildly in circles, biting its tail, spun in a frenzy, and died. It lay in the parlor for an hour. Two o'clock, sang a voice. Delicately sensing decay at last, the regiments of mice hummed out as softly as blown gray leaves in an electrical wind. 2.15. The dog was gone. In the cellar, the incinerator glowed suddenly, and a whirl of sparks leaped up the chimney. 2.35. Bridge tables sprouted from patio walls. Playing cards fluttered onto pads in a shower of pips. Martinis manifested on an oaken bench with egg salad sandwiches. Music played. But the tables were silent and the cards untouched. At four o'clock, the tables folded like great butterflies back through the paneled walls. 4.30. The nursery walls glowed. Animals took shape. Yellow giraffes, blue lions, pink antelopes, Lilac panthers cavorting in crystal substance. The walls were glass. They looked out upon color and fantasy. Hidden films clocked through well-oiled sprockets, and the walls lived. The nursery floor was woven to resemble a crisp cereal meadow. Over this ran aluminum roaches and iron crickets, and in the hot still air, butterflies of delicate red tissue wavered among the sharp aroma of animal spores. There was the sound like a great matted yellow hive of bees within the dark bellows, the lazy bumble of a purring lion. And there was the putter of okapi feet and the murmur of a fresh jungle rain, like other hoofs falling upon the summer starched grass. Now the walls dissolved into distances of parched grass, mile on mile, and warm, endless sky. The animals drew away into thorn breaks and water holes, it was the children's hour. Five o'clock. The bath filled with clear, hot water. Six, seven, eight o'clock. The dinner dishes manipulated like magic tricks, and in the study, a click. In the metal stand opposite the hearth, where a fire now blazed up warmly, a cigar popped out, half an inch of soft gray ash on it, smoking, waiting. Nine o'clock. The beds warmed their hidden circuits, for nights were cool here. 9-5. A voice spoke from the study ceiling. Mrs. McClellan, which poem would you like this evening? The house was silent. 
the voice said at last. Since you express no preference, I shall select a poem at random. Quiet music rose to back the voice. Sarah Teasdale, as I recall, your favorite. There will come soft rains and the smell of the ground, and swallows circling with their shimmering sound, and frogs in the pools singing at night, and wild plum trees in tremulous white. Robins will wear their feathery fire, whistling their whims on a low fence wire, and not one will know of the war, not one will care at last when it is done. Not one would mind, neither bird nor tree, if mankind perished utterly, and spring herself, when she woke at dawn, would scarcely know that we were gone. The fire burned on the stone hearth, and the cigar fell away into a mound of quiet ash on its tray. The empty chairs faced each other between the silent walls, and the music played. At ten o'clock, the house began to die. The wind blew. A falling tree bough crashed through the kitchen window. Cleaning solvent, bottled, shattered over the stove. The room was ablaze in an instant. Fire! screamed a voice. The house lights flashed. Water pumps shot water from the ceilings. But the solvent spread on the linoleum, licking, eating under the kitchen door, while the voices took it up in chorus. Fire! 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 The house tried to save itself. Doors sprang tightly shut, but the windows were broken by the heat, and the wind blew and sucked upon the fire. The house gave ground as the fire and ten billion angry sparks moved with flaming ease from room to room, and then up the stairs. While scurrying water rats squeaked from the walls, pistoled their water, and ran for more. And the wall sprays let down showers of mechanical rain but too late. Somewhere, sighing, a pump shrugged to a stop. The quenching rain ceased. The reserve water supply, which had filled baths and washed dishes for many quiet days, was gone. The fire crackled up the stairs. It fed upon Picassos and Matisses in the upper halls, like delicacies, baking off the oily flesh, tenderly crisping the canvases into black shavings. Now the fire lay in beds, stood in windows, changed the colors of drapes, and then reinforcements. From attic trap doors, blind robot faces peered down with faucet mouths gushing green chemical. The fire backed off, as even an elephant must at the sight of a dead snake. Now there were twenty snakes whipping over the floor, killing the fire with a clear cold venom of green froth. But the fire was clever. It had sent flame outside the house, up through the attic to the pumps there. An explosion! The attic brain which directed the pumps was shattered into bronze shrapnel on the beams. The fire rushed back into every closet and felt of the clothes hung there. The house shuddered, oak bone on bone, its bared skeleton cringing from the heat, its wire, its nerves, revealed as if a surgeon had torn the skin off to let the red veins and capillaries quiver in the scalded air. Help! Help! Fire! Run! Run! Heat snapped mirrors like the first brittle winter ice, 
and the voices wailed. Fire! Fire! Run! Run! Like a tragic nursery rhyme, a dozen voices, high, low, like children dying in a forest, alone, alone. And the voices fading as the wires popped their sheathings like hot chestnuts. One, two, three, four, five voices died. In the nursery, the jungle burned. Blue lions roared, purple giraffes bounded off. The panthers ran in circles, changing color, and ten million animals, running before the fire, vanished off toward a distant steaming river. Ten more voices died. In the last instant under the fire avalanche, other choruses, oblivious, could be heard announcing the time, cutting the lawn by remote control mower, or setting an umbrella frantically out and in, the slamming and opening front door, a thousand things happening, like a clock shop when each clock strikes the hour insanely before or after the other, a scene of maniac confusion, yet unity, singing, screaming, a few last cleaning mice darting bravely out to carry the horrid ashes away. And one voice, with sublime disregard for the situation, read poetry aloud in the fiery study, until all the film spools burned, until all the wires withered and the circuits cracked. The fire burst the house and let it slam flat down, puffing out skirts of spark and smoke. In the kitchen, an instant before the rain of fire and timber, the stove could be seen making breakfast at a psychopathic rate. Ten dozen eggs, six loaves of toast, twenty dozen bacon strips, which, eaten by fire, started the stove working again, hysterically hissing. The crash. The attic smashing into kitchen and parlor. The parlor into cellar, cellar into sub-cellar. Deep freeze, armchair, film tapes, circuits, beds, and all like skeletons thrown in a cluttered mound deep under. Smoke and silence. A great quantity of smoke. Dawn showed faintly in the east. Among the ruins, one wall stood alone. Within the wall, a last voice said, over and over, again and again, even as the sun rose to shine upon the heaped rubble and steam. Today is August 5th, 2026. Today is August 5th, 2026. Today is August 5th, 2026. Today. I hope you all enjoyed that rendering of Ray Bradbury's short story, There Will Come Soft Rains. I just wanted to end off here by offering a little bit of analysis of how I think this story relates to the current moment that we're living through. So I think this ultimately is kind of a representation of the failure uh, and maybe even the inability of what Bradbury sees as scientific progress to protect us from not only forces beyond our control, uh, such as nature, but also ourselves. And I think that's particularly important given the context that both Ray Bradbury wrote this story in, which is, of course, you know, kind of at the in the early days of uh, the Cold War, post-World War II, in the age of nuclear paranoia. 
but also Sarah Teasdale's poem written in the wake of World War One, which was, of course, a horrific, deadly war that saw the introduction of a lot of new technologies that were used to extinguish human life. And, you know, that kind of in concert with the flu pandemic, which, you know, is this kind of force of nature there as well, really kind of drives home that point of, you know, despite all of this technological or scientific progress that we've made, we still have this kind of inability to deal with both the nature that we cannot control that we're trying to, but we can't quite do it, as well as the sort of extreme and sort of negative consequences of that scientific progress. While that progress is what creates the, our smart homes and our, you know, our, our stoves that churn out six loaves of toast at once, it is also what gives rise to things like bombs and uh, technology that kills people. So I think the really big takeaway from this story is that in a time where both technology and the natural world have this kind of imminent threat of destruction, where we can kind of see our chickens coming home to roost in a way, I think what this story teaches us is that we fundamentally need to gain a better understanding of our own humanity. This story and the Sarah Teasdale poem, I think, function as an exercise in humility more than anything else. It reminds us that there are limits to our hubris when it comes to thinking about and acting upon our notion of progress, human progress, scientific progress. Hopefully it gives us a bit better ways of thinking about how to work within, you know, the sort of chaos of nature and the kinds of things that it's wreaking upon us right now, both in terms of climate change as well as the global pandemic that we're living through, but also how to comport better with ourselves, with each other, particularly with, you know, the people that we are around on a daily basis although that's a little bit limited at this point, thinking about how we comport ourselves in relation to the rest of the human community. I think that that's a really important lesson to take away for, uh, for the current moment as well. So I hope that you enjoyed this reading of uh, Ray Bradbury's There Will Come Soft Rains. We look forward to bringing you more reread stories in the future. And of course, we're looking forward to more Reverb episodes in the coming months. So thank you all for joining me today. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg. Reverb's co-producers are Calvin Pollock, Benjamin Williams, and Sophie Watson. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in.